Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Revelation chapter 2. We're continuing in our study through the book of Revelation. And this morning, we're going to be, <clears throat> we're going to be in verses 8 through 11. The second letter that Jesus dictates to the Apostle John, and this one is the letter to the church in the city called Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was a city in which the early Christians suffered fierce and intensifying persecution because of their faith in Jesus. Now, when we say persecution, we don't really understand what that means. We might face some kind of mild opposition when we share the gospel openly. Perhaps there are consequences when we live out our faith in the workplace. And perhaps in a small way, there is a sense of mild persecution that we endure when we do those things and we live for Jesus in this world. But we don't really grasp the kind of persecution that these believers were facing in the first century in the Roman Empire. But there are places in the world that do face that kind of persecution even today. I want to read to you from a website that I go to at least on an annual basis called Open Doors USA. Once a year, they publish what's called a World Watch List, which is a list of the 20 most severe offenders of uh, Christian persecution throughout the world, 20 countries where Christians are being persecuted the most all throughout the, the world. And for as long as I've been going to this website and looking for that world watch list, North Korea has been number one on that list. Let me just read to you some of what they say about what life is like for Christians in that country. Being discovered as a Christian is a death sentence in North Korea. If you aren't killed instantly, you will be taken to a labor camp as a political criminal. These inhumane prisons have horrific conditions and few believers make it out alive. Everyone in your family will share the same punishment. Kim Jong-un is reported to have expanded the system of prison camps in which an estimated, get this, 50 to 70,000 Christians are currently imprisoned. Most Christians are unable to meet with other believers and have to keep their faith entirely hidden. There are even stories of husbands and wives not knowing for many years that their spouse is also a Christian. Secret police carry out raids to identify Christians, and children are encouraged to tell their teachers about any sign of faith in their parents' home. A Christian is never safe. Let me read just one more. Number two on the list, I think for the last couple of years, has been Afghanistan. 
Here's what they say about life as a Christian in that country. It is impossible to live openly as a Christian in Afghanistan. Leaving Islam is considered shameful, and Christian converts face dire consequences if their new faith is discovered. Either they have to flee the country, or they will be killed. If a Christian's Christian's family discovers that they have converted, their family, clan, or tribe has to save its honor by disowning the believer or even killing them. Christians from a Muslim background can also be sectioned in a psychiatric hospital because leaving Islam is considered a sign of insanity. We don't know anything about that kind of persecution. But what does Jesus say to believers, to churches that are enduring and facing that kind of persecution? Well, that's what we see in his letter, Jesus' letter to the church in Smyrna. So follow along in your copy of your scriptures as we read verses 8 through 11 of Revelation 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for recording this letter from your son to the church in Smyrna. And though perhaps it's difficult for us to comprehend even a small part of what they were enduring for you, we do sense, Father, a growing intensity in the opposition to the gospel and the opposition of those who follow you in this country. So Father, would you make the words that you have given to this church in that situation, Father, prepare us to face whatever is on the horizon for our church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we mentioned last week, all of these letters follow the same basic format. There's uh, an opening, and then a body, and then a closing. And this letter to the church in Smyrna is very short. It's only four verses. The opening is one verse, the closing is one verse, and the body itself only is comprised by two verses. And so let's look at each one of those. First of all, the opening is in verse 8. And in verse 8, we see those same two elements that comprise the opening of each of these seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. First, 
an identification of the audience, and secondly, a characterization of Jesus. So he says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last. So this is written to the angel that corresponds to the church in Smyrna. So the ultimate audience is the church in Smyrna. So what do we know about that city? Well, unlike Ephesus, it was a smaller city. Ephesus was the largest city in Asia Minor. But Smyrna was about 40 miles to the north, also a harbor city on the Aegean Sea, but much smaller. But though it is smaller, it's still a harbor city, and so there was still significant trade and business in town. We also learn from the text here that there was a significant population of Jews in the city of Smyrna. In the city of Smyrna, like the city of Ephesus, there was also a temple to a Roman god. Now, in Ephesus, it was the temple to the goddess Artemis, and that was a huge structure. The one in Smyrna was much smaller, but it was to the goddess Roma. And Roma was the the god that personified the Roman state. And so, like in Ephesus, the emperor worship was a big deal in the city of Smyrna. Also, like we mentioned last week, each of these letters includes a a characterization of Jesus that's borrowed from the imagery that we find in the vision of the King of Glory in chapter 1. From that vision of Jesus in chapter 1, each of these letters borrows a piece of that imagery to identify who this letter is from. And in each of these letters, the characterization of Jesus seems to be tailor-suited to the situation of that particular church in that particular town. And there are two aspects of the characterization of Jesus here in verse 8 to the city of Smyrna that are noteworthy. First of all, he says, the words of the first and the last. He's talking here about the eternality of Jesus, that, that Jesus is everlasting. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He has no beginning, and he will have no end. He lasts forever. And then he says, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. And so he's talking there about his resurrection, that the, 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 the one who is the first and the last, he died, but he has come back to life, and he lives now, and he will live Forever. Now think about it. If you're enduring tribulation and persecution on the order that these believers were, with the promise of even more intense persecution to come, which they are in verse 10, how might a reminder of Jesus being the first and the last strike you? What benefit might come from being reminded that this one who is the first and the last, who died, but who came back to life and lives now and forever, what might that do to you to know that this is the one who is writing this letter to you? Well, of course, that would be extraordinarily encouraging to you. It would inspire you. It would would empower you, and it would give you a fuel for your steadfastness of faith, even in the midst of suffering and persecution which is precisely the goal of this letter to the church in Smyrna. So what does Jesus say in the body of this letter to this church? 
We said last week that the body of these letters, the main portion of these letters, includes a mixture of things like commendations, things that they are doing well, accusations, things that they're not doing well, exhortations, things that that he tells them to do, and warnings if they don't do them. But this letter that Jesus dictates to John to the church in Smyrna is unique in that it doesn't seem to have either commendation or accusation. In fact, of the seven letters, there are only two in which Jesus doesn't have anything bad to say to the church at all. This one and the church in Philadelphia, as we'll see in chapter 3. But neither does Jesus seem to explicitly commend this church for anything. Instead, he uses this letter to encourage this church. Why? Because, friends, this is a church that needs encouragement because they are going through a rough time tribulation, poverty, and slander. How encouraging would it have been for them to hear from Jesus, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and I know the slander that's being hurled at you. That would have been incredibly encouraging for them. I'm walking among you. Jesus is walking among the seven golden lampstands. He's in the midst of them, and he says, I see what you're going through. It doesn't escape my attention. I'm not caught off guard by that. I see it. I see it and I know it. You know, when someone is going through a season of suffering, sometimes uh, we find it hard to to, to find the words to say to them, right? But, But we know one thing that we shouldn't say, and that is we know what they're feeling when we don't really know. But Jesus is able to say to these Smyrnans, I know your tribulation." I know your poverty, and I know your slander, because he endured the same. Jesus could empathize with them because he knew exactly how they felt. My friend, the same is true for us. No matter what kind of suffering, no matter the degree of the suffering that you endure in this life, whether you're enduring it now or whether you will endure it in the future, perhaps Jesus is the only one who can say, I know, I know you're suffering. So right from the outset, Jesus is encouraging the believers in the church in Smyrna. He sees their plight. He knows their suffering. They're going through a season of tribulation, poverty, and slander. Now let's look more closely at each one of those. First of all, he says, I know your tribulation. That word literally means a pressing down. I see you, church. You're being pressed down, which which is why this has the connotation of oppression and persecution here. They're being pressed down here. Now perhaps this was a result of Uh, the Romans, but we're given indication later in this verse that the tribulation that this church was enduring in Smyrna was actually a result, first of all, of the Jews that were there in town. 
But, but they're facing this time of tribulation, this time of being pressed down, of oppression and persecution. Now, I happen to think that the oppression that they're enduring here is physical. The tribulation that he's referring to here is of a physical nature, some kind of physical oppression. And I believe that for two reasons. First, because it's contrasted with the financial oppression that's going to be discussed next. So it's not financial in nature. But secondly, we see in verse 10 an escalation of physical oppression. It goes from bad to worse. And so that tells us that the tribulation that, they, that they've endured thus far is just a lesser version of that which is to come. And so they're experiencing this time of physical oppression, physical persecution, but also a time of poverty. Jesus says, I know your poverty. Most predominantly because of the slander against them, as we'll see in just a moment, these Christians in the church in Smyrna are enduring both physical oppression as well as financial oppression. Now, this financial persecution could have taken the form of perhaps them being excluded from the trade guilds in town or the commerce, which would have made it very difficult for them to make any income at all and support their families, which resulted in them experiencing poverty. Or maybe it was even more volatile than that. Perhaps their property was being confiscated. But whatever form it took, Jesus says, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. But what else does he say? But you are rich. How encouraging would that have been? I know your poverty, but you are rich. Later in chapter 3, Jesus will write to the church in Laodicea and say the exact opposite. They're rich. But Jesus says, actually, you're poor. And to the church in Smyrna, who is poor, what does Jesus say? You're rich. Now, how can that be? Well, apparently, wealth can be measured not just materially, but spiritually. Isn't this what Jesus meant when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. With regard to treasures on earth, the believers in Smyrna were poor. They were in poverty. But with regard to treasures in heaven, what does Jesus say? You are rich. You are rich. Church, we need to stop measuring wealth only materially, but spiritually as well. We see this all throughout the scriptures. James says in James 2 verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen who? those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. You might be poor in the world, you might be rich in the world, but are you rich in faith? Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.18, 
to exhort the wealthy in his church to be rich in good works. He, he, he says, Timothy, tell the wealthy to be rich in good works. As if ri- being rich in good works is of much greater worth, heavenly speaking, than to be rich materially. The writer of Hebrews commends his readers in chapter 10, verse 34, by saying, you, listen, you joyfully endured, accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew you had a better possession. I wonder if we would have the same approach to that if it were to happen to us. If the government were to plunder our property, which apparently was something that was happening to the original audience of the book of Hebrews, as well as to the church here in Smyrna. But what if it happened to us? Would we be able to say, we joyfully accepted the plundering of our property since we knew that we had a better possession and an abiding one? We wouldn't be able to say that unless we understood that wealth can be measured on a spiritual plane. Later, the author of Hebrews writes about Moses in that hall of faith in chapter 11, verse 26. Listen to what he writes of Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, the reproach of Christ there refers to the suffering of Christ for sinners. The reproach of Jesus on the cross to rescue sinners who had turned against him. Which parenthetically is amazing there in Hebrews 11. Because that tells us that Moses was looking forward to a Messiah who would suffer reproach and suffering for sinners. But Moses considered the honor of of suffering the reproach of Christ to be of greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Is that how we face the prospect of suffering for Christ in our world, in our life today? What little suffering we potentially risk? Do we consider that an an honor and a privilege as if it were of much greater wealth than all of the treasures of our land? The Apostle Peter also writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Beloved, I love this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Well, the church in Smyrna was facing fiery trials. They were sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And it, and it came at the hands of both the Romans and the Jews. And it came in the form of both physical and financial oppression. But Jesus has reminded them, Oh, but you are so wealthy in the Father's eyes. That they can say along with Moses that the reproach of Christ is of greater value than all the treasures of Asia Minor. Jesus also says here that that he knows the slander that's being hurled against them. 
And in the last part of verse 9, Jesus identifies for John and for the church in Smyrna. He identifies the perpetrator of that slander. He says they are those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now first we should know how Jesus refers to the Jews in Smyrna, in the same town as them. They say that they're Jews, but they're not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Now that seems pretty harsh. Jesus is saying here, they say they're Jews, but they're not really Jews. They're actually agents of Satan. What's going on here? Remember what Paul said back in Romans chapter 9. Paul said, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he says. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. And back when we were going through the book of Romans, we noted what Paul meant here when he said, not all Israel is Israel. He meant there is an ethnic Israel, and then there's true Israel. The ethnic Israel is entered into through birth. The true Israel is entered into through faith. As Paul told the Galatians, it is those who are of faith who are the children of Abraham. So now Jesus says to the church here in Smyrna, the ones who are slandering you, they say they are the true Israel, but they are not. They're the ethnic Israel, but they're not the true Israel. By virtue of their denial of me, they are not the true Israel. The true Israel now is the church of Jesus Christ. Those who have come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. Again, as Paul reminded the Galatians, it is those who are of faith who are the children of Abraham. So instead of these Jews in Smyrna being the true Israel, they are actually, Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. Now this is not anti-Semitism, as some would argue. Jesus himself was a Jew. So was the Apostle John. But instead, this is a statement of fact. Those who oppose Christ are agents of the enemy. And because of their slander of these, the the slander of these unbelieving Jews against the Christians in town, they were being used as agents of Satan to do his bidding. As we'll see later in verse 10, Satan is going to throw some of these Christians in Smyrna, in jail. Well, how's he going to do that? How's Satan going to accomplish that? Well, he's not going to do it himself. He's not just going to appear on the streets of Smyrna and start dragging Christians off to prison. No, he's going to do what he normally does, and that is he's going to use people to accomplish his evil schemes. And here in Smyrna, he's going to use these unbelieving Jews through their slander of the Christians. Now, what was their slander against them? Well, as we mentioned last week, uh, the imperial cult was huge um, all throughout Asia Minor, requiring the worship of the emperor. And the city of Smyrna was no exception. In fact, um, historical accounts tells us that the imperial cult was particularly active in the city of Smyrna. And for a variety of reasons, the Jews were exempted 
They were exempt from emperor worship. They didn't have to do that. They got a pass. And the Roman authorities considered Christians to be part of the Jews. They considered the Christians to be a sect of Judaism, which is understandable because Christianity came from a background of Judaism. But these Jews here in Smyrna, because they opposed Christ, because they denied that Jesus was the Messiah, and because they wanted to stop the Christians in town, because of that, they ratted on the Christians to the Romans and said, no, 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 they're not part of us. They're not Jews. They're not part of us. And look, they're not bowing down to Caesar. They are violating your laws. That was the slander against the church in Smyrna by these Jews. And as a result of this, the church in Smyrna endured both physical and financial oppressions, not only at the hands of the Jews, but also at the hands now of the Romans. So now Jesus, after expressing empathetic knowledge of their current state, says, I I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, I know the slander that's being hurled at you. Now he gives exhortation to them in verse 10. Listen to what he says. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus tells them it's about to get worse. I know your tribulation. I know your slander. I know your poverty. It's real. I see it. I know it, but it's about to get worse. Worse in what way? Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Five things I want us to note from verse 10. First, I want us to see here the devil's ability to cause suffering. Satan's ability to cause suffering. Now, How do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of Satan's ability to cause suffering in light of the awe-inspiring vision of the glory of Christ that we saw in chapter 1? The eyes of flames, the feet of burnished bronze, the the voice like the roar of many waters, the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. If that is the image of Jesus, how in the world can Satan have the ability to do anything? How do we make sense of those two realities? Jesus says in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. If Jesus has been given all authority, then, then how does Satan here have the ability to throw Christians into jail? The answer is that he operates only within the limits that our sovereign God sets for him. When Paul, we see this all throughout scripture, when Paul had that thorn in his flesh, the thorn in his side, remember that, 2 Corinthians 12? What did he call it? He called it a messenger of Satan sent to harass me. And he, he pleaded with the Lord three times, to remove it, remove the messenger of Satan. And what was the reply that he got from the Lord? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. 
In other words, that messenger of Satan sent to harass you is part of my plan for you, Paul, to perfect you, to sanctify you, and to conform you to the image of my son. Jesus told Peter in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Later that night, Satan was granted permission to sift Peter. And when he did, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. Consider God's servant, servant Job. Satan required permission to cause suffering in Job's life. And God sovereignly granted him that permission But even in the granting of that permission, he set limits. God told Satan, all that Job has is in your hands. Only against him, do not stretch out your hand. In other words, you can touch all that Job has, but you will not touch Job. You see, a biblical view of suffering affirms that our God is sovereign over it. And that while the devil may be given great latitude to cause suffering even unto the elect, we should be encouraged that he's on a short leash. And he can operate only within the limits that our sovereign God sets for him. And for the church in Smyrna, Those limits included the ability for him to throw the believers, some of them, into prison. We also see here, secondly, that there is a purpose for suffering. There's a purpose for it. Jesus dictates to John, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. Not only is God sovereign over suffering, but because of that we can rest assured that there is always a redemptive purpose to it. And sometimes that purpose is to test our faith. You see, faith is like gold. In order for it to be purified, it has to be subjected to heat. And so our Lord purifies our faith in the furnace of affliction. One of my favorite passages of Scripture that illustrates this is Peter's first epistle. And By the way, Peter is writing in his first epistle to these very same churches, to the churches all throughout Asia Minor. Listen to what he says to them, to these churches who are, even in that day, suffering persecution. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, here's the purpose statement, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friend, this is what Jesus means when he tells John to write to these Christians, the devil's going to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. 
Jesus intends to purify their faith through the furnace of affliction so that he might be glorified in and through the tested genuineness of their faith. So we see the purpose for suffering. We also see in verse 10 the impermanence of suffering. It doesn't last forever. He says that for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now what do we make of the number 10 here? Well, as we encounter numbers throughout the book of Revelation, I think we need to resist the temptation to always interpret them literally. Now some of the times we should interpret them literally, like the seven churches. Jesus is referring to seven literal historical churches. But many times... Many times we should resist that temptation simply because of the kind of literature that the book of Revelation is, the apocalyptic genre, which as we've noted includes all kinds of symbolic imagery and descriptions, not the least of which sometimes comes in the form of numbers. Whether it's the number 7 or the number 10 or the number 12 or the number 1,000, which is just 10 times 10 times 10, or the number... 144,000, as we'll see, which is just 12 times 12, times 10, times 10, times 10. I do believe that many of the times, as we counter numbers in the book of Revelation, that we should interpret them, sometimes literally, but sometimes symbolically, that, that they refer to something, the, the completeness of something, or the wholeness of something, or whatever. Or we are to interpret them representatively. That a large number simply means something large, and a small number simply means something small. So when we see the number 1,000, 1,000 years, while perhaps it's not necessarily meaning a literal 1,000 years, maybe it is, perhaps it just means a really long time compared to what we see here in verse 10, which is a time period of 10 days, which again, not necessarily a literal 10 days, but it refers to a very small amount of time. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that some of you are going to be thrown into prison to be tested. And for a short time, a relatively short time, you will face tribulation. How long was the tribulation that the saints in Smyrna faced? We don't know. It was a relatively short time compared to eternity. And friends, the same is true for us. Whatever suffering that we face in this life, though it may seem long, though it may seem like there is no end in sight, it is just for a time. And compared to eternity against the backdrop of eternity, it is brief. And so be encouraged, brother or sister, this too shall pass and we shall soon be home. Two more things that I want us to note from verse 10, and this is where we get to the exhortation that Jesus has for these two churches, for this church in Smyrna. These two exhortations come at the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse. First, Jesus says at the beginning, do not fear what you're about to suffer. And then he says at the end, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So two exhortations, don't fear suffering and be faithful unto death. And all that we've learned about suffering from these verses equips us to be able to obey those two exhortations. Only because we know 
that God sees us in our suffering. And he can be empathetic in our suffering. And that he is sovereign over our suffering somehow, though we don't understand it. Only because, also because we know that though the devil may be able to cause suffering, he is on a short lease and he can only operate within the boundaries that God sets for him. And because we know that suffering has a redemptive purpose and that it will not last forever. It is only for this world. Because we know these things, we don't have to fear suffering. We fear God, not suffering. It doesn't mean we enjoy it. It doesn't mean we go sadistically looking for it. But it does mean that we don't have to fear it. Ours, as Peter said, ours is an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading and friend no amount of suffering in this world will ever take that inheritance from those who know Christ through faith in fact it can only prepare us for it so Jesus encourages the church in Smyrna don't fear what you are about to suffer and be faithful unto death Jesus was not saying, be faithful and you will escape death. No, I really think what he meant here was, some of you are going to die as a result of this tribulation. Some of you are going to die in prison. Some of you are going to die in the arena. But some of you, as a result of this tribulation that's about to come on you, you will die. And so, be faithful unto death. As Christians in 21st century America Following Jesus Christ is probably not going to be a life or death situation for us. Like it is for brothers and sisters in places of the world like North Korea. And like it was for the Christians in in the church in Smyrna. But what if it was? What if it was a matter of life and death? Well, friend, then Jesus would say to us, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Jesus closes this letter to the church in Smyrna with verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Again, as we said last week, these letters close with a word to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. In other words, to the one who obeys these exhortations and doesn't give in to the accusations here. In this case, he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He says, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. But the one who conquers, though he experiences the first death, he will not be touched by the second death. He's talking there about the judgment. He's talking here, the second death is the punishment that we all deserve because of our sin, which is an eternity in hell tortured forever by the flames of judgment. That is the second death. And he says the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And we conquer only by faith in Jesus Christ. One of the early church fathers is a man by the name of Polycarp. And oddly enough, he was a citizen of the city of Smyrna. He was a member of this church that received this letter. 
He was a disciple of the Apostle John. And he was the bishop of Smyrna. And the martyrdom of Polycarp is one of the most stirring historical accounts of martyrs that we have today. Today it's translated for us into English by the venerable J.B. Lightfoot. About 60 to 70 years after the writing of Revelation, Polycarp was arrested in Smyrna for his faith. He was led into town and brought before the proconsul who appealed to him to deny his faith in Jesus. The proconsul said to Polycarp, Reproach Christ and I will set you free. To which Polycarp famously replied, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul replied to him, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp replied, call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent of what is good, to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil into righteousness. The proconsul then threatened him, if you despise the animals, I will have you burned. Listen to Polycarp's reply. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. So they do. They light the fire beneath him, and as he prepares to die for his faith in Christ, this is what he prays. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you with him, through the Holy Ghost, Be glory both now and forever. Amen. Friends, that's what it looks like to be faithful unto death. And Jesus says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ to rescue you from that second death, to rescue you from the judgment that you and I deserve, friend, you will taste the first death. We all will. It's part of living in a fallen world. But Jesus promises you will not be touched by the second death. Jesus tells you and I, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. But if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued from judgment and the punishment that you deserve as well, you too will one day die in this world. But if you do not come to faith in Jesus Christ, you will also experience the second death. 
Friend, if that describes you, I beg of you, please consider the dire situation of your precarious predicament and trust in Christ, his righteous life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection to rescue you from what you deserve. Let's pray. Our Father, we read about a place like this and it's kind of like reading a news article of a foreign land somewhere far from here. A place that the surrounding culture is so opposed to you that merely to gather in your name would be putting one's life at risk. We don't, we don't know that, Lord. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that my family doesn't experience that. I'm grateful, Father, that we can gather freely. But Father, it just makes us consider whether or not we're really living for you because we know that we do live in a culture that is increasingly opposed to you. So, Father, with the, with the encouragement of this letter to our brothers and sisters in that church, prepare us and equip us and ready us for what may soon come in our life experience or in the experience of our children or our grandchildren. Grow our faith in you. Remind us, Father, that we're not to be taken by surprise, by suffering, or by persecution, and that every bit of it is somehow within the purview of your sovereign care, and that you're using it to make us look more like Jesus, and that ultimately as we stand up underneath it, we bring you glory. And so, Father, in whatever way you choose, be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.